How would you like this bonus in your contract? A $500,000 bonus for a few seconds of work. There is someone today that could earn, and you could watch him earn, $500,000 with a few seconds of work today. If Preston Smith tackles the Baltimore Ravens quarterback behind the line of scrimmage today, he will earn $500,000. He gets two more sacks. That's tackling a quarterback behind the line of scrimmage for those that don't know football. Anytime in this season, he'll get $750,000 more. Two more than that, $750,000 more. Two more than that, $1.2 million. If he gets 14 sacks by the end of this season, he will earn $4.4 million in contractual incentives. That's on top of his $8 million salary. Talk about a good contract. How many of you guys would take that today? A few seconds of work, 500K. Take that. Phil, you want to get in there right now try to get a sack against the Baltimore Ravens quarterback? That would be great. Well, Preston Smith made a good move. He redid his contract for these incentives, and it has actually turned out well. Today, we're going to see Israel recommit to a contract. And they are going to talk about some specific clauses in the contract. We've got to decide today, is it a good contract? Is it worth doing all the hard stuff to get the bonuses? Or is it a crummy deal? And the questions for us today, as we look at Israel and their contract, the questions for us are this. What kind of contracts are we in? Are they good? Does God offer one, or is it just a bunch of rules that will make us miserable? Is his contract a good one? This is what I'm going to argue to you today. I think this is what the scripture argues to us today. The contract and covenant of God is a good contract. Even the hard clauses show it's incredible goodness to us. Well, let's look together, shall we? Ezra, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter 10. I'm going to go through these names, okay? You're going to bear with me as we do that. You're going to give me much grace as we go through them. I think it's important that we go through the whole chapter and read it. Bear with me as I read it, and please pay attention to God's word. Even the names have significance to us. Nehemiah chapter 10. On the seals of the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakulai, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Melchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Barak, Meshalem, Abijah, Mishamin, Messiah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, 
Binui, the sons of Hanadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peliah, right? Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachor, Sherebiah, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Benainu, the chiefs of the priests are Parosh, Pereth Moab, Elam, Zatu, Binai, Bunai, Asgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adon, Atter, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Hereph, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpish, Nag, Magpish, Mashalam, Hazer, Mashazabel, Zadok, Jaduu, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshai, Hananiah, Hashab, Halohesh, Pelah, Shobek, Raham, Hushabna, Messiah, Ohonah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, and Baonah. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have been separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe all and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. You hear this and you go, I wonder what he's going to do with this. 
Well, we've been in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah again. It was one book until later in church history and is divided into two. And it is a book about God keeping his promises to his people. Over the past 80 years, we have seen the Israelites who were in exile in Persia 500 miles away come back into devastated Israel. The temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. Jerusalem was in ruins. In over 80 years, through opposition externally, opposition internally, the temple has been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. The people have come back from exile. And they have realized by reading the word together that they serve a faithful God who is faithful to his promises. And even though they went into exile because of their disobedience, they serve a God that was slow to anger, abounding in love, and that his love is shown in the way that they have returned back to the land. The temple has been built, the walls have been rebuilt, and here they worship together. And the thing is, they are realizing in the word that they've read that they have had a contract with God. And they have not fulfilled their end of the bargain. But God in his mercy and his love has been gracious to them. And in this realization of his goodness and them coming back into the land, again, the temple being built, the walls being rebuilt, Jerusalem coming back together, the people having a land, they realize they are in a great contract. And they need to double down on this deal. They need to recommit to this contract that is so sweet and so good. They realized the contracts that they went to in the time before their exile did not work. Contracts with foreign gods, with Egypt or Assyria. Their contracts to build an army with chariots. These things did not fulfill. But a contract with the one true God, Yahweh, is one that was faithful and good. And they have decided to gather together and sign this contract. Two government officials... 17 Levites, 21 priests, 44 other high-ranking leaders, and they represent the families of the people that have returned back from the exile. Even some of those first families that returned 80, 100 years ago are in this list. Why did I decide to read all these names? I could have just decided to skip over them. Because I wanted to practice my pronunciation in Hebrew names? Probably not, because I realize I just butcher them. No, that we would know that these are real families, real people that have seen firsthand God's faithfulness. And these names are listed so the people that read this throughout Israelite history and to us, 2,000 years later, that God is good and these people have committed themselves to the Lord by name. Quinones, Plath, Gibson, Smith, Frost, Shilla, 
Van Dalen, Dupere, last names that I probably have butchered over times. Novak, right? Instead of Novak, right? These are real people, real names that have said, I commit to God's visible church. I acknowledge that I'm part of the family of God and admit his covenant and what he has done. They put their names down to signing this contract. Not just them, it's extensive. All the families, gatekeepers, wives, sons, daughters, everyone, not just Israelites, but everyone who separates themselves to be under the Lord and the word of God. Here it is. They're not just halfway buying into this. They are wholehearted going into this contract that we've seen in the context of this book. This is realizing we are in a great contract. I want to sign it while it's good. This is trying to get a woman to make vows with you because you know it's such a good deal. You want this woman to be with you that you're going to make those vows. This is a great deal. I better get her before she realizes who I really am. This is signing the title to a house before anyone else snatches it up. Even if it's a 30-year mortgage, you're saying, oh, I'm committed. I'm going to pay the 30 years because it's so good. I want this. This is taking a contract at a job because it's your dream job. You're like, oh, I've got to get it now before it's gone. You're not thinking in those moments, oh, wait till I see this woman brushing her teeth. Wait till the 22nd year of the mortgage. What happens if the new boss at my work is a jerk? See, you're not thinking about those things in that moment. You just realize it looks really good. I've got to grab it now. This is like the cousin at the bachelor party, right? That before you decide to say the vows, he says, oh, doing the old ball and chain, huh? Usually I want to smack someone like that right before my wedding, right? Don't say that. Don't say that to the woman that I love. I'm excited about this. Thing is, that's what some of us might think about Christianity. It's a bunch of rules and a bunch of things I have to do. Don't tell me that. I serve a faithful God that is good, that saves us, that rescues us from sin. It is so good. In your conversion, you're not thinking those things. You're thinking how good it is that God would rescue me. But many of us don't realize what we are sometimes committing to. The struggles that come. The dishes that stack up. The mortgage that continues to come every month. 
only having two sacks in five games and wondering if you're going to get the bonus. The thing is, when we look at the contract with God, many times we can't see its full unveiling of what the contract actually is. Instead, sometimes we live in duty and obligation than realizing what the contract actually is. And we're going to see that here the Israelites in just two chapters as we go throughout Nehemiah have forgotten very quickly what they have signed up to do, but more importantly, the faithfulness and the goodness of God. So let's see what the contract is, shall we? Verse 29 shows it to us. A clear picture of the contract. They join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Now you've got to remember, they've been reading the Torah. They've been reading the five books of the law and this language is probably very familiar to them especially in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 this idea of curse and oath those are words that quickly would go to them to the idea of this covenant this promise between God and this covenant is constantly referred to as blessings and curses if you abide by the covenant you will receive blessing if you abide by the law, good things will happen. And if you do not, there will be curses. There will be consequences. And we've seen in Nehemiah, they have reviewed the history of what they've done with contracts with God through time. How when they followed the Lord, there were blessings. How when they didn't, there were curses. And how that happened throughout Israelite history. But they've seen even in the curses, even in their not following God, God was faithful and good and came back to them slow to anger, abounding in love. That he kept his side even though they did not keep theirs. Now I have to realize, if some of you that grew up in the church and things like that, and I throw words like covenant and blessings and curses, it just might just be like, yeah, I've, I've heard this before. This is familiar language. But for some of you that have not grown up in the church, and maybe it's become so rote that we haven't come to understand it, just we don't understand its impact the idea of making a contract with God, a covenant with God, sounds kind of ridiculous. It sounds impersonal, restricting, or just plain weird. The idea that there's some legal binding with a deity, with some cosmic force. And when we use this language and talk about these books with all these names as written 2,500 years ago and contracts and laws and all those things, many of us just say, you know what? You just do your thing. You do you, church. I'll do me. I don't live by contracts and laws with some mythical force. 
I get your hesitancy this morning, and I understand that. But I want to make an argument to you this morning. Whether you admit it or not, all of us live by some cosmic contract. Maybe you don't verbalize it. Maybe you don't write it on paper and sign at the dotted line. But maybe it's pretty subliminal or you're just living in it. Maybe it looks a little bit like this. If I work hard, if I do the things I'm supposed to do, I will reap benefits, I will receive comfort, and my expectations of life will be good. That's a contract. If I just stay in my lane, I keep my head down, the world will not mess with me, and I'll have freedom. That's a contract. If I provide for my family, if I love them, if I care for them, they will appreciate me and respect me, and I will get to be able to sit down at Christmas time and watch it all unfold with joy and happiness. That's a contract. See, whether we know it or not, we have some deal with the universe. That if I live a certain way, I will get something in return. Call it some cosmic thing. Call it fate. I don't know what you want to call it. But we live by some contractual rule. Maybe you want to still challenge me on that. No, I do not. Don't say that I live by some contract by the universe. Then I want to challenge you even more then why do you get frustrated when things don't turn out the way that you want them to? If there is no standard, if there is not some higher law, if there's not some way that we're supposed to live, then why do you have standards at all of the way the world should be? If there is no God, if there is no way that we're supposed to live, what are words like justice and freedom and love. What are those words? They mean nothing. But you still throw them about like you deserve them when there is nothing to enforce them or nothing that set it up in the first place. Whether we admit it or not, we live by some contract. As Christians, we admit there is a standard put together by God, a holy God, that he has put down a moral law, that if we live by them, there will be blessings, and we don't, there will be consequences. And all of us have to wonder as we look at the world, how is this contract going? Not well. There's wars, division, addiction, family strife, apathy, 
suicide, death. How about the contract we've learned about growing up in our history classes in America, right? The social contract, right? That we've all entered into in democracy. This social contract we've entered in together as citizens. That what would we get in return? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. How is that going right now? As people are freaking out, as we see us divide against each other, as we see conflict and death in our nation, how is our social contract going? See, Christianity answers the reality that we live in. It says to us, guess what? We are living in the curse. We are living in our rebellion from God. That is what we are seeing in the world around us. Merry Christmas. Right? Aren't you glad you came for this message this morning? Sounds just hopeless. And two chapters later, we're going to see they just break it again. But Christian, please hear me. You have not heard the full contract. In Galatians 3, we see the full contract. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is the contract that we have signed as Christians. A contract of grace that admits we need Christ for salvation. That he is the hope that we celebrate in this season. That he has come to take the curse for us. To take the longing that death still reigns, that we still have suffering and pain in war, that he came in to give us true hope. But still, part of the problem is our confusion about this contract and about Christianity in general. That we say, okay, if I follow these rules, I will then be accepted. That is not the contract of the gospel. The gospel says you are accepted by grace, not of ourselves. But that leads to greater confusion sometimes for some of us. Well, if I'm accepted for just who I am, no matter what I do, then I'm going to do what I want to do. No, the gospel says out of our love and acceptance and all the goodness that God has done, then I obey. What is the reason that I do the dishes at my house? Because I made a vow that I said in the contract with Aaron before we got married, I'll do the dishes three times a week. Do you think we said that in our vows? No. 
That would be insane. And if we made vows like that about rules like that, we'd both have to be lawyers to sort it all out. Hopefully, I do the dishes out of love. The response of love for her. Even when I do not want to do it. you got to understand the flow of this book. I'm trying to unpack this for you. The people, again, are sitting in the courtroom of the temple. The temple has been built. The walls have been rebuilt. They have gathered back together. And they are praising God for his faithfulness and his goodness that he did not smite them from the world, but instead loved them dearly even in their rebellion and their rejoicing and praising God for it. And then out of that love, out of that seeing what God has done, they then recommit to abide by the laws of what he has laid down. Even the hard ones. They do it out of their love for him. And then in the rest of this passage, we see three major law pieces that they decided to accentuate or talk about. One, not marrying those who belong outside of the people of God. Two, specific things about regarding obeying the Sabbath. Three, supporting the house of God. And it must make us all wonder, why did they centralize on these three issues? They've been reading a ton of laws over this time. So much more extensive than these three areas. Why would they then double down on these three issues after signing this covenant? I think they do it is because these are three issues they are specifically struggling with. Both in Ezra and in Nehemiah and in Malachi, the contemporary prophet at this time, they are pointing out that these issues they are not doing well with. Why? Well, there's lots of conjecture on why that is. I'll give a few. One, they are probably the poorest culture in the land at that time. And the idea of marrying someone outside of their culture was a way to move upward and to give them security. So it looked appealing to marry someone outside of Israel and the Hebrews. Two, the Sabbath could not have been easy when they're trying to be very productive as they're rebuilding Jerusalem. The idea of resting one of these seven days. And even the end around that they're trying to do is purchasing gifts from other people so they don't disobey the Sabbath even that is a problem of not resting. And then they have this other part of the Sabbath that in the seventh year that they would not till the land, they did not harvest the land, and they would forgive the debts that those ha all other people had against them. That would have been insane, right? 
In a time of trying to rebuild and then forgive debts in poverty in the nation to do that? And how about, again, the idea of trying to build back Jerusalem, and then there's this request that you have to give your first fruits to this temple and this religion, supporting the priests and the Levites, giving wood and money and food and cattle. And you've got to be thinking, there's more important things that we should be spending our money on right now than supporting this religion. Imagine the conversation, right? Just roll with me on this, okay? Mom, Dad, yeah, Judy's a Canaanite, okay? I understand that. But if I marry her, there's financial stability. And I love her. This law is so backwards. Why can't I marry Judy? I don't think there's any Judys in Canaanite culture. Maybe not. Maybe there was. Maybe it's a Canaanite word. Judy, a Canaanite word? I don't know. Maybe it could be a name. And probably they're not talking about romance and loving someone. And, oh, I just love her. Why can't I be with her? That's probably not what they're saying either. But you get the point. The idea of giving the land a break, that's insane. How am I going to eat this year? And I forgive someone's debts? Oh, now you want me to give the best parts, the first parts of what I gather and what I gain to religion in the temple? I see what it's all about here. Just supporting these priests so they make a lot of cash. Right? Supporting this institution so we can have religion. Who knows, maybe that's the conversations they had. I know that's sometimes the conversations we have on those issues. But the thing is, those perspectives don't flow from how they are responding to God. They are living in the idea that they trust what God will do even in the hard issues. Thing is, it would be easy for them to list the laws that they already follow well. Why would you need to trust something outside of yourself if you're already doing it yourself? See, it's the issues that we disagree with God about where we see where our trust really is. Do I need to say it again? It's the issues we disagree about God on that we see where our trust really is. You ever wonder what those things are? I would read Matthew 5 through 7. <laughs> That's a good place to start to see how we're doing. The Sermon on the Mount. But how about I list some of them for us, huh? Sound good? You want to hear these, don't you? Loving our enemies rather than cursing them in our hearts. How are we doing with that right now? Let's go, Brandon. Is that what we should be saying as the church? Is 
that what we should be doing? God, convict me of the way that I think about others that do things that might harm me or take my freedoms or whatever it might be. If I curse them, I murder them in my heart. Lord, help me to love my enemies, even though I don't trust you that you will take care of me, even when I feel like my freedoms are, take, are going to be taken away. I trust you, Lord, that you've called me to love those that might hate me or take my freedoms away because you know better than me. Not looking upon people as sexual objects, but instead that they are made in the image of God. Heavenly Father, I am single and I struggle and it's hard. Will anything good come to me? Will I ever be with someone? I want some satisfaction, Lord. You can trust me. I am good. I will be a relationship greater than anything else in this world. You can turn off the screen. You can stop looking at these sights. I will fulfill your greatest longings. Trust in me. Entrusting our money with the Lord. By being willing to give it away to support the work of the new Israel, the church. Lord, I earned it. It's mine. You don't know what it's like living paycheck to paycheck. Other people have retirement accounts. I do not. Is anyone looking out for me? Lord, I trust you that you will provide for me. That when I give away my money, it will not own me. I will not be idolatrous towards it. That I will not see it as my ultimate security that it's in you. And when I give it away, Lord, it shows that you are good. That you are my provision. Resting in Christ with our work by taking a day off and believing that God can be our productivity. There are so many responsibilities I have to take care of. A boss that's demanding, a family that wants things from me. The house needs this done and that done. It's way too much. I can't take a day off. Every day I have to work. If I'm going to make it in this world, if I'm going to advance in my career, if I'm going to be look good to my neighbors, I have to be out there seven days a week. What does the Lord say to us? I am your rest. I am your provision. Trust in me that I've given you this day for you to be able to make it. hard things. Here's the thing. Some of you might walk away from this message and you know what you hear 
is, oh, I heard this pastor tell me that I need to give money to church. That's all they want, money. Hear me, this was just on the docket. That's what we're talking about today. It wasn't planned. That's where we get to. I went to church today, and all that I heard was some puritanical message about sexual ethics. I went to church today, and all I heard is guilt about how I'm working too much. I went to church today, and all I heard was some political message about some guy that probably likes Joe Biden. If that's what you heard today, you weren't listening. His commands are not out of our demise and out of his demand. His commands are out of his love for us, his children. Sometimes I wish I could say it as well as other people. Sometimes I can't. And I get so frustrated when I read this this week. And I realize that John Piper said it better than I did. Okay? John Piper's not the end-all, be-all, or anything like that. But if you've been reading this, you might have read this this week. Here's what he says. Here is a general truth to ponder and believe. Every time Jesus commands something for us to do, it is his way of telling us how he wants to serve us. Let me say it another way. The path of obedience is the place where Christ meets us as our servant to carry our burdens and give us his power. When you become a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, you do not become his helper. He becomes your helper. You do not become his benefactor. He becomes your benefactor. You do not become his servant. He becomes your servant. Jesus does not need your help. He commands your obedience and offers his help. Christmas. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to help us to do everything he calls us to do. He is our rest. He is our redeemer. He is our greatest lover. He is the one that calls us enemies, friends. The contract is greater than any contract you could ever imagine in this world. And it's not one where we sign on dotted lines, where we make 30-year mortgage commitments, where we make vows in front of people on a wedding day. No. This is the contract right here. A contract where he gave his life for us. And we don't just sign on a line, but instead we take him in. 
that we would be united with him. That out of his union, being with him, then we live out what he's commanded us to do. With his power and his love to truly be free, to truly be sons and daughters. So this is what you're going to do. You're going to come up as a family. And you're going to get this contract. One that he has initiated. One that he has fulfilled. Even when we fail at it. Week by week by week. His steadfast love is sure and true.